welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Suzanne Moore, the award-winning journalist and columnist Suzanne has written for publications ranging from The Mail on Sunday to Marxism Today and has been a columnist at The Guardian for more than 25 years. She's known as an astute and fearless commentator and was joint winner of last year's Orwell Prize. I was on the shortlist a few years ago, but I've never won. She talked to me about what she hasn't missed during lockdown, culture wars at The Guardian and how she's had enough of clicktivists. She also offers advice to aspiring journalists and says she'd like her daughters to train as electricians. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me on my podcast this morning, Suzanne. I'm really thrilled to have you here. Um, We're talking as the nation is taking baby steps out of lockdown. How has lockdown been for you? Well, it's nice to talk to you, Christina. Um, I think like everybody, I've been up and down, good days, bad days. I began to notice a cycle in sort of what I call heavy lockdown where I'd be sort of really okay for three or four days and then I'd have two days or so where I couldn't do a thing. (laughs) And they often coincided on the Thursday when we were all meant to be clapping. So the clapping clapping began began to irritate me like hell. Um, So I felt it made me feel more powerless and and all those sorts of things. Um, I've actually found this coming out of lockdown probably more stressful than the actual lockdown. And I don't think I'm alone in that because I'm just extremely confused about what I should be doing, even with my own family and my own children and grandchildren. I am really confused and um, everybody is just kind of winging it, aren't they? Obviously, as a as a writer, you work from home a lot of the time. But even mm-hmm. so, having to be at home all the time is different. What have you missed most during this period? I think it was a bit strange at the beginning. At the beginning, because lots of writers gave their really unwanted advice. I felt to people who weren't <laughs> writers. I was really sick of reading articles like "Hello, I know what to do" because I'm already a writer, and I just thought, "Oh, come on." you're already weird, aren't you? Because writers are people who are lonely and on their own all day and can cope with it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a writer. I mean, that's just a fact. Well, that's just, when people say to me, I want to be a writer, I always say, do you actually mind being on your own a lot of the time? And they say, oh, I wouldn't like that. And I think, well, then you're not going to be a writer. So <laughs> advice from people who've chosen to do a weird thing on their own, yeah. I found really useless because most people probably want a bit of both they want some time on their own to get on with their jobs and they want to have you know the cliche water cooler chat and the mm. and the creativity that comes from bumping into people at work and so much of the discussion around work has just assumed everybody works in an office and nobody actually has to do anything exactly but that and that's been very very sort of class bound hasn't it I, think. I agree completely and, um but being at home all the time uh with a teenager that's been you know we've had our moments put it that way because (laughs) I felt that really I felt for her I felt her life's on hold you know Mm. she doesn't complain uh, but she can't do any of the things that she should be doing Um, I felt it strongly for her and 
she didn't, yeah, she didn't complain and her friends didn't complain because because also this is a generation that's entirely used to communicating online. Um, whereas older generations don't live so much. We do live a lot online, but not quite as much as they do. And so yeah, mm. they were, they got on with. But the things that I miss most, but, and I do still miss, I mean, I like traveling. Um, I want to go places. I... I don't know how safe it will be for me to go to some of the places I want to go to. And I miss live music and I miss cinema. That was what shocked me. I don't want to watch everything on a small screen. For me, it's a real treat to bunk off in the middle of the day and just go by myself to a cinema and sit in an audience and watch a film. And yeah, I miss that. I miss miss that aspect of... uh, being sort of anonymous in an, in an audience, and that's not something that you can get online. And uh, but I sort of I was surprised by the things I didn't miss as well. You know, I mean, I've I've had friends saying, "Oh God, don't you miss you know art galleries and things?" And a lot of the time, I have to say, "No, not really." Mm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe I will. You know, maybe I will. But um, and yes, restaurants, but. Not restaurants as they are now, you know. I'm I'm not keen to sort of have this restaurant experience screened off and uh, away from other people because the kind of places I've always liked have been sort of a little bit dark and cosy and intimate. Mm. Yeah, I I can't think of a restaurant I like where it could work. You know, that's sad. I mean, that says something about me, I guess. But I don't want to sit um, screened off in 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 places. I completely agree. I've got no desire to do that whatsoever I mean what I and like you there are lots of things I have been surprised that I haven't missed you know I think I love the arts but I haven't been to obviously I haven't been to anything artistic and I'm fine um <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I mean this is terrible yeah, I mean if you'd asked me before I'd have said oh my god I can't go to the Tate anymore um, but do you know what it's not something that's really bothered me I, <laughs> I, I sort of wish that I mean Somebody did ask me to review some exhibition and it was online and that was completely pointless because that was that was somebody walking around with a camera looking at the things that they want you to look at. Yeah. I, guess, I guess the freedom of, of, of a gallery is, is you know, you're in charge and you look at what you want to. And mm. again, this, you know, it'll, it'll, be, it'll just be like going around a supermarket in the, with the one-way arrows, won't it, in the tape? It'll, you know, here's the... Yeah. You know, and that to me, it's a hand sanitizer here. The Lou Ross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the way that we might view art in that way doesn't yet have any appeal to me. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And all these people, um, and I, I really applaud their resourcefulness and their creativity and all the rest of it. And my inbox is exploding with digital offerings from every art center and gallery yeah. in the country, and lots of people are reviewing online theater and things done from people's front rooms and absolutely well done them but personally I'm sick to death of staring at a screen I had a I felt my first sort of um summer social for something I belonged to last night which of course was in zoom breakout rooms and well done the organizers for organizing it was it anything like a party it absolutely wasn't like a party I like going to parties drinking a lot bumping into people (laughs) having random conversations with people I've never met before that's what I like about a party and you can't do it now yeah I mean that's that's exactly the right word the kind of randomness of 
social interaction, which Zoom kills, doesn't it? I, for me, the only successful Zoom things I've done have been quite formal, where there's almost been like a chairman or chairperson mm. who says, right, you speak now, then you speak. Because otherwise it's loads of people all just speaking. You can't mm. see. Psychologically, I mean, we read a lot about from other people about from their whole body language it feels strange I mean the first few zooms I did I just decided I just stopped I thought this is making me feel worse would you say that there's anything particularly you've learned about yourself apart from that you don't need to go to art gallery <laughs> yeah I think well we have to learn things don't we otherwise we've failed us I've learned that I don't have hobbies because I don't want them uh, <laughs> I haven't suddenly become like a knitter or a gardener I mean I, I, don't, I didn't do those things because I didn't want to do them um and I haven't so I wish I wish something had come over me I did watch one of Grayson's art clubs and I think I bought some oil pastels and they're sitting there on my desk and they look lovely but I've never opened them you know that kind of I loved Grayson's art club it was my favorite program of lockdown though obviously I didn't do any art whatsoever no, it, was, but it, was, it was lovely viewing it was, it was such a enabling program and I don't like that word enable, but a feel a feel mm. good thing of yeah I thought I thought it was a, I thought I thought it was a, a lovely program uh but I think I learned whereas you say you know you you did miss party I think when a man met David Bowie um <laughs> and said are you ready to settle down kind of you know when he was proposing marriage you know because you were always out and he said it's fine. I've been to all the parties. And I mean, he was David Bowie and he probably had been to all the parties. And I got a bit of that. I thought, do I actually ever care whether I'm standing in a room drinking sort of crappy white wine uh, at somebody's do that I don't really know? Do I do I really miss that? Is that something that um, I'm, I really miss? Um, no, I didn't miss it that much. Other other friends of mine were just saying, oh, I just want to go anywhere. I don't care what it is, you know. But I suppose I'm quite introverted. Uh, I like social things and then I like to be on my own. So it was actually I learned that a lot of the things that I would like to change about myself, um, you know, the sort of self-improvement type things, nothing, <laughs> not in lockdown didn't make that happen. But in the, Nor me. In the end, <laughs> if I want to, you know, be fitter, healthier, thinner, you know, read more books, write more, then, look, you know, having a pandemic has not kind of improved that situation for me. <laughs> Exactly the same with me. <laughs> alcohol, no, no, no tick. <laughs> Reduction of alcohol, no tick. More exercise, no tick. Struggling to get into your jeans. Yeah, I'm quite jealous though because some people seem to have, you know, oh yes, I've lost two stone and I've written. And I just, uh, then part of me thinks, well, have you got no emotional kind of attachment to what's really happening in the world? Which is, mm. i.e., a total kind of collapse. Um, well, exactly, exactly. And I wanted to ask you about that because I, I sort of feel like um, I went through my worst grieving before lockdown, actually, because I felt like I was wandering around in a parallel universe, staring at people, thinking, don't you realise what's about to happen? I remember walking down yeah. Stoke Newington High Street and I just wanted to cry because I thought everybody thinks the world is normal and it's not going to be normal again. I mean, maybe ever, but certainly not for a very long time. And And so in a way, I felt that being a sort of prophet of doom in the whole thing has helped me psychologically because although I don't feel great now and I still have disturbed sleep, 
at some level, you know, I went, I went through that four months ago. So I'm not, it's not kind of hitting me now. Whereas I think for some people, it's kind of hitting them now. But you talk about a process of collective trauma and how we're, or you did have talked in your yeah. columns about yeah. the process of collective trauma and, and um, how unfortunately we have a government in denial about all of that. We're meant to be pretending we're not going through that. And I, I won't go into all the politics of it because I know you and I agree about this. And, and um, in a way, I don't, you know, I want to focus on work really and other issues now. But I just wondered where you think, I know you, you, you started a degree in psychology and you've recently done training to be a therapist. Psychologically, where do you think we are and what steps do you think we can t- next take as a nation towards healing, given that we can't, it's hard to start healing when you're still in the trauma? Well, well that's um, exactly right. Well, what I did, Christine, was um, a, a basic counselling course in the first year of an MA uh, in right. uh, in um psychotherapy which I had because I'm just working too much um and the work on trauma there's really interesting work on trauma actually it's something that we know more and more about and and it's often been focused on individuals and of course I mean actually when at this time of when I was training some of my tutors suddenly had to not be rush off because of Grenfell because um that kind of specialist level of um training that you would need to to cope with that and what was apparent from that is that for instance you can't begin uh obviously they sent in bereavement counsellors as they will for people who've died of covid but you can't start doing the kind of basic bereavement counselling while people are still in trauma because when people Mm. are still in trauma they are either in the place where their fire was or in the hospital waving at the person who's you know they're still in that physical space and one of the ways that you can heal is um well you heal is kind of an overused word but you need a narrative that can kind of put events uh that you can reorder in 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 into some sort of sense and the problem with covid is the narrative should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it doesn't mm. have it. Mm. And that the narrative that people have fallen back on, particularly the government, is you know this ridiculous battle and war stuff, and that it's just a completely inappropriate way of understanding what's happening. Um, mm. And then also the narrative shifts and. I, like you, was from the beginning, oh, my God, this this is world-changing. This is changing our world, and it's going to change our world for a very long time. Whereas I keep hearing people still saying, well, it'll be over by, you know, September, or, or now, now it's going to be over by Christmas. And you just think, and and this over, I'm, I'm afraid I think that, I, I would really like to be wrong, but I think the vaccine's being terrifically overhyped at the moment. Mm, uh, I agree. You know, and I really hope I'm wrong on that. But um, the idea that this very, very, very bad thing has happened and it will end, and it's a bit like um, how we might talk about climate change. You know, it's not something that's ever going to stop happening. You know, this is the mm. process and we're in it. Um, I suppose I don't I don't think there's any any sort of training that I did that has been useful here but simply I guess as you've seen as anyone has watched those daily press briefings 
the absolute sort of denial, really, the emotional intelligence of understanding this level of death, this impact it has, and the kind of recourse to science. And the way they will keep talking about science is so science all thinks one thing is one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and assume, I, I really feel they've talked down to people and not uh, given us any not treated anybody with any sort of intelligence. And if you, the minute you talk to anybody, basically, um, who's on the front line, whether that, you know, one of my daughter's friends is an AE nurse, I know doctors and stuff. Yeah, they just start telling you what they see every day. And it's a completely different story to, to mm. one that's being kind of spun. And it's interesting that the women leaders have, generally speaking, yeah. done a much better job and that they've been more honest about the trade-offs, about the challenges, about the failures. They've been more empathetic and they've been more realistic, whereas we've had a lot of populists kind of cheering us on, which uh, tragically is incredibly unhelpful when uh, when you have a, a potentially lethal virus around. Do you think, obviously you've spent your life uh, speaking out for women and fighting for women's rights in what is essentially still tragically a patriarchal society and world do you think there is any possibility that this will shift perceptions about of women as leaders um that that would be one positive wouldn't it to come out Mm. um i would hope so i mean because the guys couldn't have done a worse job um I thought the way that Merkel spoke, for instance, you know, and, and, and using her knowledge as a scientist and, uh, you know, was, was, was great. And obviously everybody talks about um, Arden. But, I mean, I do think, I, I, I think comparing New Zealand to England is, is kind of, well, we can't, you know, there's such different countries and different mm. populations and so on. Um, I think, I hope that women leaders will uh come out with a bit more respect but i fear more generally and i felt i fear i have been afraid for years before covid that the the position of women has slowly been getting worse and worse and it's not a very sexy issue like certain issues so you know we have week by week terrible terrible stories that concern women and women's rights from pensions to the uh, a most appallingly low rape conviction uh, statistics have just come out, you know, but basically rape now is, you know, you will get away with it. That's what the stats will tell you. Um, and those sort of issues uh, and the domestic violence that we know increased during COVID and the amount of mur- uh, murders of women by intimate partners during COVID, all of that stuff um isn't regarded by the media as sort of anything kind of really sexy and worth writing about and Mm. it still is obviously um worth writing about and the absolute failure to acknowledge the existence of children and childcare during Mm. i mean it it's unbelievable you know to tell people to go back to work and homeschool and incredible i mean I just don't know any anyone who is really able to, to do it unless they have staff or are incredibly wealthy and, you know, all of that. Yeah, so, well, yeah, I mean, in answer to your question, yes, I think women that have shown 
great leadership in all sorts of ways. And actually, even before we locked down, where so I think we both live in Hackney, I could see local community groups starting to form, even just the neighbourhood app groups, and saying, "What can we do? Do you want food delivered? Do you want this thing?" Yeah. Um, in a in a in a really um, admirable way you know nothing not organized through any mainstream political party or anything like that but just people going yeah what can we do what can we do and we're there to help uh and i think that level of sort of organizing that's one of that that is one of the good things that's come out of covid people just actually trying to look out for each other and for every story about you know some idiot who won't wear a mask and does something stupid you know there are those other good stories too so you know and there are often women-led you know people making sure that the school kids get their dinners you know who who were on free school meals and all of that stuff I mean I, I agree I agree with all of that but you know on the other hand uh, to, to continue on the rather negative front the today the TUC has estimated that out of 9.8 million key workers putting their health at risk by being on the front line nearly two-thirds of women and around 2.6 million female key workers earn less than 10 pounds an hour and this week the IMF has said that 30 years of gains for women could be wiped out by this pandemic so it's it's very difficult I mean one of the things I'm obsessed by and in all the other almost all the other conversations I've had so far in this podcast it comes up it's kind of optimism versus pessimism because I have only to hear someone say I'm an optimist and my heart just sinks but um but you know one has to kind of one has to also keep engaged and uh fighting because um it ain't over till it's over how how do you, I mean, I think, you know, you're a, a, a realist as I am um, and not someone to kind of, you know, talk talk things up inappropriately. We're looking at some dreadful, dreadful statistics and situations here, but we can't all give up. No. Where, in relation to women in particular and loss of rights and economic heft and power and so on during this pandemic, as well as all the negative stuff that was happening already, how do we kind of galvanize um some energy so that we don't think well it's all over well I, I hope that one thing is as everyone has you know said that all the existing inequalities have now been put out there and, and it's yes. clear to see that I hope that this younger generation of women and um, now sees what they have to fight rather than uh keeps fighting you know the older generation of women I I, yeah. I actually am really sick of um certain uh viewpoints that are made obvious in the newspaper I work for and on Twitter uh, about how sort of all old people are horrible by old people I mean anyone over 40 um are all horrible Tories who probably voted for Brexit and just and they've got their own house, so they don't care about anyone else. And and they probably murder, you know, trans trans uh, sexuals in their spare time. Kind of that kind of view of the elderly. And they all voted Brexit. And the only way that that, that any of this will stop and Jeremy Corbyn will be resurrected is when is when these people die. You know that that's one. Bit. My take on that is that um, I I sort of wish that people did all uh, you know this world that, that's conjured up of these radical hit young people who think the right things about everything and these old terrible people who own everything um that is not the world i live in or have ever lived in because guess what people have families guess what you know 
I know young women because I've got three of them and I <laughs> you know lots of young people who think lots of different things and I think that this there is a generational divide in terms of property ownership and that's terrible and we really have to address that some of the you know one of my uh, things that I would hope is that the um if shopping is no longer the thing that is meant to make us all happy that uh, and high streets which were already dying anyway you know die off completely and i think they will in certain places that 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 property can be taken over for young people to live in you know as affordable housing yeah. that we recreate cities that we recreate um new spaces for for people uh what i'm going to say is is really old fashioned but activism whether it's about women's uh, pay or domestic violence or any of those or childcare is really boring hard work mm. the day-to-day slog and it is not sitting on twitter saying you're an ally of somebody exactly you know? and that's what i hope people kind of get into their heads now and i think it's a particularly hard time to do collective action now when you know people be told to isolate but at the same time it has absolutely shown our interconnectedness and how we how we might uh change things but the corbynistas the trans activists click clicktivists really rather than activists yeah. yeah um they are such a minuscule subset of society that it's kind of really neither here nor there they just have um ludicrous uh weight apportioned to them because they are very militant on social media and as you say change is hard painstaking boring work both politically and in terms of actually activism um but you know one thing that struck me actually is um i've spent this week helping to facilitate um uh, an online conversation with a huge global corporate i can't say which one but a very big one on black lives matter and diversity and having seen those protests um, they have taken very, very seriously the lack of diversity in their own company, which is about 60,000 people globally, and have invested in um, a big a big programme of conversation in which everybody in the company was invited to take part. And they're now commissioning work and taking all kinds of action, which does show so, that activism, yeah. real activism yeah. can make a difference. I think one of the things about, you know, one of the, one of the things about COVID is uh, that, it's forced us, all of us, because we've had to be at home. Yeah, you know, we have to think global and act local. And I think that's always a good um, slogan, you know, for, for, for any kind of activism, activism. That, yes, you think on the big picture, but you act locally. And, yeah. and and that's really been brought home by, you know, you literally do take some shopping around to the person up the road. And the other and the other thing that's really been brought home is to, to I think, to younger people in in ways... And I, which I, and I think they've done absolutely brilliantly is that a lot of people they may not look vulnerable but they are you know they 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 have to be shielded um they've just had chemo or they've got some immune system thing going on and I feel like lots of young people I know have been incredibly considerate around that and tr- trying to work with that and that's been brought to the surface that there are lots of people he may seem okay, but sort of really aren't. And um, I think that when we talk about emotional intelligence in our leaders, um, you know, the, the admission of vulnerabilities 
is not a bad thing. And it's it's so weird for me to watch, well, not just for me, but to watch Boris Johnson nearly die and then go like, I'm fine now. <laughs> kind of, it's like, you know, I mean, God knows what any shrink would do with that man. But, I mean, he's not fine. No one is fine if they've been in intensive care. Mm. No one is fine. And it's just this sort of, yeah, um, I know he's now decided to do something on the weight issue and all of that. But but if at the time he was ill, um, I mean, obviously the people around him couldn't admit his vulnerability either. It's a strange kind of denial and I don't I don't know who it's who it's for at this at that point um that it just no that whole that basically the the lying from number 10 when they insisted on saying he was in good spirits when he literally couldn't even talk I mean we we knew we were being lied to and it's very strange how they think that I don't know what they think as you say I don't know what they think that will achieve I mean going back to the kind of um in a way activism through journalism activism isn't really the word but obviously uh, you know, you are the kind of journalist who hopes to at least get people thinking seriously so things can change. I assume that that's been a big part of what has fueled you throughout your journalistic career. Can you say you are that rare beast, a, a journalist with a working class background, which obviously is, you know, you need to go in a museum soon, Susan, oh, because there aren't very yeah, many of those. Well, I'm ready. I'm ready to do I could be, you know, <laughs> what's that man who makes turns everyone into that sort of plastic thing. I feel I could be that. Um, I feel very angry about it still because I get a lot of young people who write to me who want to, who say, how did you do it? And can I do it? And and I have to say, no, you can't do it because the route by which I entered journalism no longer exists. I think. Certain things have got better. Um, certainly at The Guardian, which I am, you know, I, not the biggest fan of right now. Uh, is um, yeah, there's de- definitely more women in uh, as editors, and we've got much, a much more kind of diverse staff, younger staff. All good, that's good. But on the whole, um, it's been extreme. The media has been extremely slow, and you know, I have a very simple attitude to this stuff, which which is. You know, let's stop having meetings about it. Just do it. You know, you just employ somebody who um, is not like you. And that's that's what it is. I mean, the guys just employ people who are like them. I mean, I remember doing a radio show years and years ago, and I could hear them. You know, when they're talking about you, the producers are talking about you, you can hear it in your earpiece. And I I heard one say, well, she's quite good, isn't she? But... She's got a polytechnic accent. <gasps> yeah. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's it. And uh, so, I mean, in my latest battles that I've had, you know, uh, at The Guardian, um, it, I really don't want to be told by socialists who went to Cambridge um, about how I should con- conduct myself um, and how it's my fault somehow that, we haven't got a Labour government. I mean, I just, I just can't, I just can't listen to it. Um, I, I couldn't, do you know, I don't even know how you bothered to have the conversation uh, and they all went to public school and they send their children to public school quite well, a lot of the do. time. They, so it's just, they it's, do. It's, it's got nothing to do with anything. It's so remote from any kind of 
that people, I mean, given that it's 7% of the population who went to private schools, I just think it's, obviously they run the universe, but it's so remote from most people's lives and experience that it, I don't know how they even have the, the nerve to but you see, But you can see that in a, in a lot of, um, a lot of people have said, haven't they, on the left particularly, oh, you know, why, how did Brexit happen? How did Trump get in? Why didn't Corbyn, who actually won in 2017, like, although some of us didn't notice that he won, yeah. Uh, why didn't he and you just have you not I mean literally you sit in an office in London or you sit in Westminster and you have you not spoken to people I mean when you went on the doorstep and asked people about Corbyn a lot of people they hardly knew who he was would just say things like I don't know I just don't like him they wouldn't say it is because of the anti-semitism round people have feelings yeah. they just don't oh, I don't like him or I yeah. do and um there, there are so many sort of issues like that where it's all red as though, you know, all the whole, the losing of the last election, the red wall vote, which everybody was hearing before it happened, but certain people were choosing not to believe. I had I had friends phoning me up in Wales going, I can't believe it, you know, this is the next mining town, they're going to they're gonna vote Tory. And I kept saying to people, it's going really badly. And they said, oh, yeah, that's just because you sort of want to say that and I didn't want to say that at all just what mm. what what I was hearing but now the idea that to bring back these red the red wall voters is to have endless kind of endless campaigns saying um you know trans trans women are women it's just is, crazy. I mean you're having a conversation that those people just aren't in or having all that bothered about I am not anti-trans by the way can I just say I no, I know, I know, I know. But you're not tra- anti-trans. You're anti. You're anti. Well, well, I just, I just would just say that my definition of feminism would be, you know, always about the rights of, of women and the welfare of children, and and that's it. Yeah. Um. But as for people's sexuality, I mean, like it's like someone talking about their car insurance. I haven't got a car, so I'm not that bothered about it. You know, it's just something that people do, really. But. But the sort of culture, so-called culture war arguments that, that have come into play, especially since Corbyn lost, and which um, newspapers are playing up quite a lot. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not sure where, where and how that's going to pan out. And in a way, I do think they're a, a, a good distraction from the 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 big COVID story because partly we can't talk about COVID every single day. Yeah, but the thing is, I know I, I completely agree with you, but the thing is that 99% of the people in this country just aren't interested in those. Uh, I mean, it's just completely irrelevant to their thinking or lives, these culture wars, um, only in terms of except that they are uh, weaponized by Boris Johnson, by yeah. in, at PMQs, for example, in calling people, you know, Remainer this, Remainer that, and that works yeah. very well. Yeah. So uh, it's just feeding the enemy. But to get to get back to the journalism thing, um the issue isn't at the moment isn't even whether enough working class uh, people or non-white middle class people are getting into journalism. The issue is going to be that at this rate, there isn't going to be any yeah. journalism. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I get a lot of people asking me, uh, you know, how do I get into journalism? And like you, I don't know what to say because I didn't get into journalism until I was 39, by the way. I'd always wanted to be a journalist and I assumed that that would not be open to me. And I got there by uh, doing freelance journalism on top of 
very, very full-time jobs for many, many years. And then I applied for a job. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any conversations. And um, eventually I got in. But it took me an incredibly long time. Um, so I wasn't all, all that uh, taken by all the people That's I then brilliant. met in Germany. You have this a whole lifetime of actual other experience, which is exactly what makes good journalism, I think. Well, it's kind of irrelevant now because um, those models are dying. So what what um, what can you say or I say about the future of journalism, about what role it might take, what shape it might take? What would you say to a youngster who says, I really, really want to go into journalism? What do I do? I guess, realistically, the first thing I would say is the thing that we always used to say to people who wanted to act. Well, yeah, you know, great you can be a great actor maybe but get another skill a transferable skill for the times yeah. when you're not actually Hamlet you know um I think yeah that is what I mean I certainly say it doesn't matter whether what it is what that skill is whether it's plumbing or teaching or what anything uh I, I would I would yeah. almost say that to anyone now about anything I'm, yeah I really I love agree. it if one of if uh, one of my daughters you know, decided to become an electrician or something I really seriously because mm. I just think we need those people um Mm. I would some of the some of the people who say they want to write I really would question their motives actually and I know that sounds quite um sort of like I'm on some moral high ground but I can't sometimes I go and talk to students and I can't quite understand what it is they they are asking to do um because a lot of them say uh, you know, I want to be a columnist, and then I say, "Have you got any sort of strong political views?" And they say, "No." And you think, "Okay," um, because there's been an, a huge amount of those sort of, especially women, are encouraged to just write confessional, personal stuff, mm. which has a limited market. I think um, I would I would tell any uh, young person to specialize uh, and then go out from there. I'm very suspicious when someone says to me, I say, what do you what, what would you like to write about? And they say, I can write about anything. And I think, no, no, I don't think probably at, you know, 19 you can. Uh, it's I think it's really good to have a couple of things that you are really good at. It could be film, it could be football, it doesn't matter. But to build up your knowledge on one thing and then branch out from there. And the other thing that, like I couldn't do my job at all without reporting and reporting reporters uh you know that's the toughest job and it's kind of the most necessary part of journalism we don't they are the people who bring us all the information that people like me are able to um uh you know kind of pontificate about but, but also mm. You know, there aren't any shortcuts here. I mean, the only way to learn to write is to read. And that's the other thing. Mm. When I sometimes do teach uh, classes, the other thing I say to them, <laughs> I say to them, and it always really upsets young people. I, I mean, I sound like I'm like 86. I'm not. I'm not but <laughs> I always say, can if you want to, you know, know what's going on in the world, don't walk around in headphones. And they go, what do you mean? I can't listen to my music. And I, and I say, no, you can listen to your music when you sometimes. But if you want to know what's happening in the world, don't blot the world out. And it's a really mm. simple tip. But but I of, often hear on the bus or in the street people talking, and it gives me 
a much bigger idea of what's happening politically than if I sat in Westminster all day. Exactly. Because you hear yeah. people go, oh, you know, so for instance, years ago, I'd hear people say, that David Cameron, he seems quite nice, doesn't he? And you just think, oh, yeah, no one's saying that about Gordon Brown, are they? And it's, <laughs> but, but, but it's that sort of thing that you pick up, like your antennae, yeah. sort of go, mm, and that tells you much more than, you know, somebody who's interviewed inside sources within the Labour Party, you know, the way that, that journalism yeah. is done. Uh, and it's basically um, the skill of journalism is to do with listening and instinct and stuff. But listening is such a big part of it. And, uh, and it's something that people haven't done enough. And that's why we, you know, it, that's why some of these big things that happen in our lives, you know, in the last few years, the ter- you know, whether it was Brexit or Trump or whatever, I mean, people have been saying for a long time that they were really, really unhappy. And they were, you know, and uh, I'm not saying Brexit was the answer to that. But once asked the question, do you want things to change, which is the question they were asked? Yeah, they said yes. And Mm. we still can't listen to them saying that, you know, we still have to say, Mm. well, you said yes, but you were wrong. And so, you know, it's just how how do how do we how do we how do we react? and How do we analyze this? But I would. I think most young people who want to write usually have some sort of passion or obsession and I think that's to be encouraged. I suppose it's it's finding your people as well, isn't it? I mean it's finding people like you who are into the same thing as you and you and that you can hang out with because otherwise because as we started off talking about being lonely or being alone, you do need some people to bounce your ideas off. Mm. You do need people who are going to say um, that's a really good idea, but you need it, you know, that could be shorter or longer or something. I mean, I don't know about you, Christina, but I think I was very, very lucky in having some great editors. I didn't start to at 30 yet, actually. Um, Did you? Yeah, mm. I was doing a PhD. <laughs> oh, mm. um, but, the, you know, I, I had editors who, they weren't... Um, one woman in particular, particular who I adored, um, every week I was a, I was a film critic for the New Statesman. Every week, like if it was good, she'd say I quite enjoyed that. That was the biggest praise she ever gave me. I quite enjoyed. It. And then if it wasn't, she'd say not one of your better weeks. And um, I just lived for I I just lived for that. I quite enjoyed it, and that was the extent. Of, but but she really got me in a rhythm of writing every week and telling me what was good and not very gently, you know, and I think a good editor is like a mentor. And these, I think what's very hard for people starting out now is editors have no time to talk to you. They have very little time to edit your copy. They're trying to bang everything up online as fast as possible. And that doesn't lead to, you know, to much, to a, for the journalist to learn how to how to be better. I'm quite um, optimistic, though. I am looking for optimism. And I, I'm i quite pleased to see that so many long-read things are doing well right now. Mm. And although newspapers are not doing well, uh, and, you know, we're not going to come out of COVID with as many newspapers as we went in, I mean, whatever, you, whatever your politics are, things like The Spectator and The New Statesman are both doing very well at the moment. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. 
Financial Times is always going to do well. But And these are all, I mean, paywall things. I, I do feel strongly, of course I do, because I would like to be paid, that journalism has to be paid for. I just do feel it has to be paid for. Yeah. And I don't, you know, The Guardian's wonderful model. Um, who knows what will happen with it? But, you know, it, it seems to me an ideal that just doesn't really kind of, pan out in the world to, because once you've given it something away for free it's very very hard to make I agree I, I, I remember writing a column about that at the end more than 10 years ago saying you've, you've let the genie out of the bottle now and it's too late yeah. Yeah. but you know I, I pay for the spectator the new statesman the telegraph the mail the times the sunday times and i don't pay for the guardian because it's yeah. free so, yeah. <laughs> so you know you ask me and i'll pay for it but i'm not going to it's not a charity i've got i've got you know 25 other emails in my inbox every day asking me for charitable donations yeah i mean i quite um, like to um so tall tortoise have set up doing slow news long read yeah. thing i like that I, i'm interested to see how that works i think these new forms i think podcasts are a great way for people to get information and and news in different ways um and a more free-flowing kind of way sometimes of getting a lot of information so i mean i think i i'm, I'm surprised at how much tv news is still dependent on print media um yes so, uh, yes i sort of wonder when they'll i mean they seem to me very like you've read something on social media and then it's two days later it's on the BBC and you think, wow, they're really slow. And then people explain, well, that's because they're doing all their fact-checking. But it still seems very slow sometimes. I wouldn't, I would never tell someone if this was their passion not to not to write or not to be a journalist. I, but I would tell them that it's hard financially and that if they really want to do it, they should they should do it, but they should also try to have another skill that they can fall back on because I think I think that's exactly right and I think actually a lot of the youngsters who whose podcasts I listen to I'm kind of you know doing trying sort of um reverse mentoring from the younger generation because I think I don't have kids and I think it's great to learn from different generations and a lot of them are being very canny and they're doing um copywriting or they're doing online teaching or now it wasn't necessarily online before or coaching or mentoring or running classes or doing podcasts or doing uh, which they're funded or funded newsletters and then they're doing some freelance yeah. journalism and they're not expecting the freelance journalism to pay their rent and they're quite right not yeah. to. yeah yeah no I think that's yeah they're kind of spreading out their their talents I mean you know both my daughters my eldest daughters have worked at various times in pubs and I mean they're working alongside people who've got MAs in international relations. I mean, that that's the situation. Mm. And now even those jobs in pubs have, have gone. I mean, we are heading, we are heading for this, you know, really, really, really hard time. Uh, perhaps we look back to the, you know, before punk happened and how depressed the seventies were, and then that kind of explosion of creativity that that happened. Mm. I mean, we, you we, you never know where things are going to come from do you I mean I do think that uh, um, there will be some sort of something that I mean I feel like I'm not the person who should know things are happening that I don't know about and that's the way it should be um, hopefully there's some, some things sort of bubbling under and you know we're all going to be surprised I mean something like 
I mean, something like Black Lives Matter, I mean, this stuff has been going on for years and years, and then suddenly, look, look, I know it's the horrible murder of George Floyd, but it suddenly becomes extremely, you know, important to to many people. Um, and we, we couldn't have predicted that. We couldn't have known in the middle of COVID that all these kids in London would be out, you know, protesting. We couldn't. Um, and as you say, I, I think... Um... The death of the high street was coming and it looks as though COVID is going to accelerate all kinds of things that were going to happen anyway. And lots of people are talking about um, turning city centres into housing for young people, whether that's social housing or, or you know, whatever, rental housing, um, I, I mean, to buy or to rent or whatever. And that could be uh, a, a very necessary um, and important change because at the moment, the so-called hybrid model we have is dead high streets full of charity yeah. shops and and fried chicken outlets. And they're outside London. They're incredibly depressing, even in some parts of no, London. So that's that, that's been long overdue. But I do think, given that tragically we are looking at very, very high unemployment I mean, I, I, as you know, I, I lost my job um, seven and a half years ago and was devastated, so devastated I wrote a book about it. And, um, and it was like a bereavement, yeah, actually, yeah. Because, because it was my identity and my vocation, felt like it was my vocation and I didn't have a partner and family. So I invested a huge amount in it. And unfortunately, many people are going to face that now. And it's not the job market is going to be very, very tough. We, do you have any advice for particularly people in midlife who lose a job now for sort of how to cope, what to do next? No, I think you would have way more advice than me on this. I mean, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next myself at the moment. And, I mean, that's why I, um, three, three, three years ago, started doing a, a psychotherapy training because I thought that's one of the partly because it's something I've always been interested in, but it was also, I thought, a job, one of the few jobs where being older is not advantage exactly. because exactly. in most jobs, you know, it is. Um, mm. And uh, I think if people can possibly retrain, of course, um, but it's what what you just said is completely key, isn't it? It's Everything that we knew was going to happen has accelerated. We have been told for a long time that jobs are not for life. We've been told that, yeah. you know, uh, that we, people will work less hours. I mean, what, what I can't, what I would like to see happen is we are still in a situation where even people working at home are still working a ridiculous 60 hours a week at home yeah. and other people haven't got yeah. jobs. I mean, we surely have to have some distribution of work where you know people have lives and can work 30 hours a week and i you know it's 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 i i talk to certain people i know friends uh, especially people who are teaching actually and one of my friends is a is a professor in an art college and she has worked so hard during covid because basically yeah. she's been actually not just teaching but counselling her students mm. who everything goes into their third year shows you know uh and they have no shows you know and just trying to keep people going and mm. has worked ridiculously long hours very very stressful because you're dealing with these young people's um disappointment um and it all just seems it just seems absolutely crazy to me that 
we have people still working those hours and then other people who can scarcely uh, get by. The, and the whole work-life balance thing that we've all, everybody has written about and spoken about, we seem further away from that than ever because of this, because, you know, because we have a government of men who don't seem to have, see, well, they do have children, but, you know, someone else just does they don't see them. They don't see them very often. Know. I mean, they're just sort of not there somehow, are they? And they're just they're just someone else's problem, aren't they? The children. Mm. Yeah. So we can't have any kind of uh, going forward until there is, you know, more help with childcare. But haven't we seen? I mean, it's really depressing to know that the the, the stats you gave me earlier about the absolute. I mean, they're they're basically below minimum wage in, in, I know. as carers, aren't they? A, a lot of women now, and this is, and yet these are the jobs that we all know we actually need. I mean, I would, and those are the and those are the jobs that will survive. By the way, you know, because the professional middle classes are now may may not realise it yet, but you know, given that anybody can work from anywhere, why why wouldn't they use the ones in India rather than the ones in in yeah, London? Yeah. I mean, it's also you know, uh, in, and the big picture thing. I mean, this is a whole Keynesian move. Uh, it's really hard, you know, this this massive sort of fiscal package into the economy, semi-nationalisation of certain things. But capitalism will demand for us to keep consuming. And mm. I think, again, I'm trying to be a bit hopeful. I think a lot of people have thought in the last few months, do you know what, I didn't really need it. I don't really need all these clothes I've got, partly never go out yeah. anywhere but I mean but yeah or oh, I don't really need you know a lot of people thought I I do need yeah I would like to go on one holiday a year or I would like this or I would like that but I don't really need like this constant need I don't think they maybe consumerism as a complete as as the only worthwhile leisure activity you know hopefully that will die away a bit I mean there, there will there will always be people who want to shop endlessly and all of that but but I've felt that people have been more sort of um yeah more kind of reasonable about what they need as opposed to what they want and uh, and the same with the whole kind of crazy celebrity culture I mean celebrities have never looked more absolutely kind of redundant and useless so I'll end with this what if you had one hope for what would come out of this tragedy Mm. What would it be? I guess it would, oh my God, I guess it would be that uh, a, a kind of re-evaluation of, of what you think life should be about and mm. that most of what you have been told will make you happy maybe hasn't made you happy and try and just find the things that do make you happy. Um, obviously, my hope would be that, you know, people don't all die but uh but on a on a on a personal level if your whole life has been geared up to things uh that have made you quite miserable in the process covid will have shown that to you i think i mean it's been a period of sort of self-reflection for some and maybe not for everybody but um just the um just accruing more and more stuff has not really has not prevented anybody from getting this disease. And what has really mattered to people is, you know, their connections with other people. 
and you know that's a you know I, I don't want to sound like Jesus or something, but I mean that is that is that is yeah you're you're no no one will sort of think you know it used to be when people were dying you know no one said oh I wish I'd spent no one says I wish I'd spent more time in the office I don't think anyone's going to say I wish I spent more time on Zoom either you know <laughs> I think like <laughs> I'm I'm really glad that occasionally a neighbour came round and we had a glass of wine you know I mean. Does, yeah. it, it does it does really make you value uh the the the, the people and the things uh, in your life that that give you you know some sort of happiness but i i would i would really like to see the end of this kind of um yeah i think the end of capitalism is a bit extreme but the end of this kind of consumerist culture whether of people or of stuff yeah definitely and and i think that would make us all feel you know our value as as people and then that would again that would feed in for me into a kind of feminist argument about our worth and how we get our worth and we get our worth from what we do and how we help other people and not by being on Instagram you know wonderful Suzanne thank you so much you've been so generous with your time it's been really lovely oh, and to you Christina you. I hope to see you in real life soon Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at QueenChristina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.